this time will be a time of rejoicing, as we know Israel did at this time, and we pray that many who have come out and those who are watching and those who are observing your days would give a special blessing. For we know that this is the way that you have commanded. This is the way that you have said, walk ye in it. So, Almighty Yahweh, we are thankful that we could come do this. A special blessing for us, and we pray that you would guide us continually and help us to teach others, teach our children, so that they might learn your ways as well. This prayer and petition we ask in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Well, just as the events of 9-11 were a sudden shock to this country, when uh, the Western world was awakened by the revival of activist Islam, so on 9-11 today, on the calendar is another reawakening, also prophetic but a lot more significant. You know, the feasts are mentioned 34 times in the New Testament. I was never told this until I came into the truth. I didn't know. I didn't know what the feasts were. This annual feast is about the restoration of Yahweh's truth, paling into significance any political movement, any other news of the day. The Hebrew for Feast of Trumpets is Yom Teruah, and it's the day of the awakening blast. And man, do feasts have significance, and especially the trumpet because the trumpet plays into every one of them. And we'll learn about that today, I hope. The day of the awakening blast, there's excitement in the air, not to mention the new moon in the air last night. Imagine all those people driving by, as Brother Michael said, our little new moon spotting spot, and they saw a whole line of cars and looking, what are you looking at, you know? Well, we don't know yet, we haven't seen it yet, but uh, we're looking for the moon. And uh, I remember one guy a couple years ago uh, stopped and drove up and asked us, what are, you, what are you doing? And Brother Michael proceeded to give him a, a sermon on the new moon. <laughs> Probably more information than he was looking for, but hey, you never know. It might someday come to his advantage. Well, the moon was confirmed. There was 20-some here that confirmed it, maybe more, I don't know. But uh, the trumpet blowing is a key communication method in Scripture. Key communication method serving several purposes. It's a rallying cry to gather. We find that throughout the word. It's a call to war. It's a call to move. And it's a call to worship. It's been months since the Feast of Weeks. We've, we've been in a drought of feast. Since then, and we're so glad then to come together at another one. And it's really uplifting. You know, we, we kind of forget and we kind of we drift along in our way and we get a little lethargic, maybe a little lackadaisical. And then a feast comes along and we're energized. The seventh biblical month is special for a number of key reasons. And this is the start. This is the first day of that month, having confirmed the moon. It's the only month that contains the most feasts, four feasts, prophetic feasts. All of the seven annual feasts encapsulate Yahweh's plan of salvation. Every one of them has a segment to tell us about his salvation plan. 
And the final four feasts tell us key details, what we need to know about Yahshua's return. And those that don't know anything about the feasts, especially this one and the ones that follow, aren't going to be so well informed when Yahshua returns because they teach us a lot. The thread that ties everything together is the harvest cycle, which dovetails with the physical and spiritual truths. We read last night uh, Psalm 104. It says, Yahweh appointed the moon, the moon for seasons. And I've often thought, how does the moon establish seasons? Until I went to the Hebrew, I opened up my RSB, and the note says, oh, okay, now I understand. And let me read that here, the note of the RSB. It says, he appointed the moon for seasons. The word moon is derived from the Hebrew Kodesh, meaning the new moon crescent. The word seasons is from the Hebrew Moed, meaning festival or assembly. The new moon crescent was established to mark off Yahweh's Old Testament feasts and New Testament feasts as well, same thing. So the moon, that's why we look for it. It's key to understanding and setting Yahweh's feast days. That's what we're looking for when we look for the moon. The seventh month is when the general harvest begins too. You have in the spring, you got the barley harvest. Then in the summertime, you got the, the wheat harvest around Pentecost. And now this is the general harvest. Each one of them tells us something about salvation and the harvest of souls that Yahweh is going to raise one day. Yahweh told Moses in Exodus 7:16, And you shall say unto Pharaoh, Yahweh, Elohim of the Hebrews, has sent me unto you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Peacekeeping groups that uh, don't grasp the Bible's agricultural dynamic misstep on this one. And the coming out of the world to keep my feasts phrase. They miss an essential interconnection with salvational truth. The feasts are an outline of the kingdom. I never understood keeping the feasts in crowded resort areas. I'm sorry, but... Uh, The worldly atmosphere runs counter to the spirit of Yahweh's feasts, the spirit and lessons of the kingdom. It's like Starbucks in the vestibule or Lot in Sodom. It's just contradictory. Yahweh said, get out of Egypt to keep my feast, not go into it. So we've always been out in a wilderness setting, and I guess you could say this is still a wilderness setting. We're way out here. But... If you've never investigated, let alone kept the annual Moedim, which is plural for Moed, feast, you're missing the key truths and insights into the salvation of the elect. Some ask why our calendar does not always jibe with the Jewish calendar that many groups follow. I want to focus on that for a moment. The Jews decided in the 4th century, in the days of Hillel II, that they were going to go with a calculated calendar and avoid, I guess, all the problems of could we see the new moon or not. They used to to see the new moon and and from the mountaintops let fires uh, so others could pass it on down the line. Everybody would say, oh, the the fire's been lit, the new moon's been confirmed, they've been seen. But uh, there's also problems with 
atmosphere. There's a problem with weather. There's problem, you know, so they just decided, I guess, they're just going to go with a calculated calendar and drop the biblical calendar that is based on the natural visible creation on new moon observation and agriculture. So the Jewish calendar begins in the seventh month. They call trumpets Rosh Hashanah or head of the year. Well, it's not the head of Yahweh's year. That's the head of their man-made year. They'll say, well, that's a civil, civil year. But they treat it, you know, like the religious year. And instead of starting at the beginning of the year, which is, you know, common sense, with Abib, they work backward for convenience. And when they calculate it, that has an impact on the start of the year. They have all sorts of rules called dahiyah that, that uh, well, we can't do this, we can't do that because of this, so we change the date. And they, they really, really messed with the calendar. Yahweh commands no such thing. His calendar starts with the maturing grain in springtime. See, all this is related to the harvest. Harvest. That's a theme that runs throughout the entire scriptures. Harvest of people from the face of the earth. Well, Yahshua gave even stories about uh, parables. Sower out, sowing seed. Some of it stuck, some of it died, some of it grew, then died. And uh, Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but Yahweh gave the increase. Over and over again, we see that motif running through the scriptures, the harvest. And so it's displayed again in the harvest times of the feast. If you read Exodus 12, too, it says, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. 12.3, speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. So the month of Abib was the time the Passover was found in. And when Israel left Egypt, Deuteronomy 16.1, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto Yahweh your Elohim, for in the month of Abib, Yahweh your Elohim brought you forth out from Egypt by night. So Abib, clearly the start month for the year. How do you determine the month of Abib? Well, by definition, for one thing. By definition, Abib means a young green ear of grain. It's a certain stage in the development of barley. The wheat wasn't ready, but the barley was. So when the, the hail came, it destroyed uh, the more mature crop. So we, we, we tie the calendar to the barley, which makes everything a whole lot easier. Um, you don't have to do a lot of calculating. You don't have to do an ad, you know, certain times, certain days, all this stuff. Probably Yahweh takes care of it. And so... Hillel focused on trumpets at autumn when he maintained that can only fall on certain days of the week to avoid atonement, a day of fasting, from following on Friday or Sunday. That way you got, if it did, you got two days in a row and you can't go out and buy food, see? So they eliminated that problem, and we'll just make sure that it doesn't fall on, on either of those days. Well, that's not what Yahweh says. He says you start at Abib, you work your way through the year, when things fall, they fall. People say, well, you know, you keep Pentecost on Sunday. That's a pagan day. Well, you keep the Sabbath on Saturday, which is 
Saturn Day, Saturn's Day. It doesn't matter what the name is. It's the way Yahweh counts it. And Yahweh counts it as the seventh day. So it doesn't matter whether it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They're all named for pagan Norse mighty ones. But, you know, we don't care. We have to keep them sometime in the week. So we just, Yahweh numbers them except, uh, you know, he doesn't name them. He numbers the Sabbath, the seventh day. Anyway, uh, so they fiddled with the seventh month. This is typical human meddling, you know, with the word. It kind of a <laughs> kind of a uh, micro microcosmic way of looking at things because man always messes with things. He can't leave it alone. He's got to tweak it. He's got to change it. He's got to add days of worship. He's got to add holidays. So you're obedient no matter how inconvenient it is to you. You follow what Yahweh says to do. That's part of our walk. It's not convenient. It's not convenient when the kids have to leave school like today. They got to make it up. It's not convenient when you have to tell the boss, I can't work tomorrow. Oh, and he gives you all sorts of grief. Well, (laughs) my faith is not one of convenience. I don't worship on, you know, the uh, first day of the week when everybody else is off because of convenience. I do what Yahweh says. You shape your life to Yahweh's will. That's the message that comes through the scriptures over and over again. Not according to your will, not according to what's easy for you. We just do it Yahweh's way. It's a central issue of false doctrine to be tweaking everything. You mold your life for him, not him for your life. The three periods in the historic design of the Jewish calendar. First of all, go way back to the original biblical calendar. It was based on the sun and the moon. Okay? The Talmudic period, during the time of Yahshua and, and later, based on sun and moon observation and calculation. See, now they're bringing in convenience. We'll change things if we have to. Then there's the post-Talmudic, which is today, basically, the present Jewish calendar, uses the conjunction or the dark moon that you can't see and not the visible crescent. Instead of the scriptural sighting of the new moon, they turn to the U.S. Naval Academy Observatory, U.S. Naval Observatory, uh, for the timing of the invisible uh, conjunction and the misleading vernal equinox, by the way. Both conjunction and equinox are arbitrary. Do you know that? You can't see the conjunction, and the moon is invisible for up to three days. So which invisible black moon are you going to choose to start your month? Same thing with the full moon. People say, oh, you've got to use the full moon. Have you ever compared full moons, the full moon and the one before and after? You can't tell the difference by looking at it in the sky. They're all so close. So which one are you going to choose? The only way you're going to know the right calendar is by Yahweh's crescent. You either see it or you don't see it. You don't have to do any comparisons. You don't have to do any struggling. You don't have to do any mathematical calculations. Well, the equinox opens another Pandora's box. Did you know that in relation to where you live, the equinox has different starting times, different starting dates for you? No need to get out your, you know, get your your knickers all in a twist over that because the Bible says nothing about the equinox anyway in determining the calendar. The equinoxes are man-made designations for spring and fall based on 
equal night and day at the equator. See, the Earth tilts, and as it tilts, it creates the seasons. Summer, when it tilts toward the sun, winter, when it tilts away. Well, in the center, you've got the equator. And when they're even, night and day, then you've got the, what they call the equinox, vernal equinox and the autumnal. But you know the day is always longer at the equinox than the night? They say equal night and day. That's not true. For two reasons. Two reasons. The measurement at sunrise and sunset is from the sun's edge, not from the sun's middle. Okay? Not from its center. And because of the refraction of light, the day is going to be longer. I I can't explain this. I'm not an astronomer. Um, I didn't do well in physics either. But... uh, for those two reasons, the equinox really isn't equal. But people say, oh, we go by the equinox. No, you really don't. You really don't go by the purity of that science. You can't. And unless you live on the equator, your equinox is as much as three weeks difference as you work your way up, say, to North America. Take a look at this. If uh, you're 10 degrees north of the equator, your equinox is March 8th. If you can read that, it's kind of small. If you're 60 degrees north, your equinox is March 18th. Okay? So there's a big difference there. This is, uh, yeah. Then there's a September one, too. Same thing, difference. There's up to three weeks difference depending on where you live. So how you can say, well, we go by the equinox. Well, unless you're living in Ecuador, uh, you've got the same problem that we might have with the barley. If you use the barley locally, it's going to be different here than in Texas or Minnesota. It's going to be different. So you've got to make a determination. Uh, So anyway, just to to point that out, because people use that equinox as their calendar, probably most people do, so to get it right, you'd have to extrapolate where you live in relation to the equator, which could be as much as three weeks difference. So I suppose just as we look to Israel for the ripening status of the barley in the fields, those using the equinox need to call down to Ecuador, find out the exact day of the vernal equinox as close as they can get to it and go by that. To synchronize with the seasons, the calculated Jewish calendar also intercalates thir- a 13th month seven times in a 19-year time cycle. Where's that in Scripture? But you see, they've got to make it fit. Otherwise, the seasons float later and later and later. Pretty soon you've you got, you got the spring, the, the, the uh, Passover in uh, November. You know, I mean, it, it gets that, that far off. So they've they got to add days and leap years and all that. With the Abib agricultural calendar, the seasons take care of themselves. Take care of themselves. I mean, Abib is, the, you know, greenier barley. It's going to only come to that maturity at a certain time of year, and that'd be in the spring. Takes care of itself. So it's already built into Yahweh's calendar. Yahweh's timetable is based on natural phenomena, and so too his feasts. Same thing with his feasts. Israel, remember, was an agrarian people. We talked about this at the Bible study. Where did he put the first man and woman? In a garden, in a garden, an agricultural setting. 
What does he say at the very end? Every man's going to sit under his own vine and his own fig tree. Again, agriculture. All this fits together beautifully. Israel was an agrarian people, not sophisticated astronomers and mathematicians working down at the University of Egypt in Alexandria. They didn't know. They just followed what the command said. Go out and look for the abi barley and then go from there. From fertilizing to planting to growing to reaping first fruits and then the general harvest. These are metaphors Yahweh's word uses in teaching his plan of redemption. The three set times of the year, the harvest, early, middle, and latter, depicted by the barley, then wheat, followed by the general harvest, all have a purpose, all have a meaning when related to the salvational harvest of this earth for his people. The Jews have several names. They call this Moed, or appointed time, this uh, Feast of Trumpets. I mentioned Rosh Hashanah, ahead of the year, or beginning of the year, which is... uh, Basically, their silver year is certainly not the biblical year. Uh, Yom Teruah, also known as the day of the blowing horn, day of the awakening blast. They also call it Yom Hadin, judgment day, a solemn feast because of the coming judgment of mankind. Well, that makes sense because when Yasha comes, he's going to come at the sound of a trumpet, and that's when judgment's going to start. And then there's Yom HaZikaron, Day of Remembrance. we got lots of names for this day. You know, implicit in the blowing of the trumpet, it's to awake us from our slumber. It's to awake us to get us back in track again with Yahweh's word. It's been, like I said, nearly four months since we had a feast. We tend to become complacent and forgetful, don't we? When we don't regularly practice, regularly practice something, we, we get lackadaisical. You become out of touch. Because man is habit-centered. Whatever he has grown accustomed to, he sticks with. You stick with it long enough, it becomes part of him. Talk to someone who's stuck on Xmas and try to talk him out of it. You'll find out what I mean. It's like absorbed into their DNA. If he gets used to the world, he becomes like the world in his thinking and in his action. If he's close to scripture, it'll be reflected in his behavior. And if you're in the Bible all the time, it'll kind of bleed on into your DNA, hopefully. Then, like the fading glory of Moses' face after he returned from Mount Sinai, the zeal starts to dim, and they get back into the world, and you get back to worldly thinking. Nothing shakes one loose from complacency like the blast of a trumpet. You know, Yahweh spoke at Sinai with a shrill blast, so loud, the Israelite says, you go up there, Moses, we're... We're scared to death. They're shaking in their sandals. Like, Leave us alone. Just you go up there and you, you talk to him. The mountain quaked. The sky was filled with deafening blasts. Whenever Yahweh talks, it seems like a sound of a trumpet. Sound of a trumpet. You know, at the end of a thunderstorm, the sky is kind of clear. or clearing out. And you hear so much better. It's kind of like this hurricane that came through. It, it, it just cleared the air. just vacuumed the air. It was so clear last night. Uh, we were heading out to our spot, and the sun was so bright, even with the visor on, I could hardly see because it was, you know, right in our face going down. It was, and the sky, you know, the old school was you can't see a new moon below seven degrees. No, we could have. If we had stayed there long enough, I'm sure we could have saw it set. It was getting lower and lower. and lower. We could still see it. 
because the sky was just perfect. And that's almost, that is so rare in Missouri in the fall. It was great. I said, let's remember this time. This one for the calendar, record books. I mean, uh, it was great. And uh, still nice. But anyway, uh, thank you for Hurricane Yahweh. Now, that doesn't bode well for people on the East Coast, and we need to pray for them because they've got one coming. It's going to hit them dead on, it sounds with lots of rain, so keep them in your prayers, and we have a lot of brethren there, too, along the coast. But uh, when it gets to this point, we get nice, refreshing rain, and it's it's beautiful. We don't have much wind. Um, Anyway, fast forward now many centuries. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Israel has been taken captive by Babylon for 70 years. Then they were released from captivity by the Persians. They want to go back to their beloved Jerusalem. Enter Nehemiah, cupbearer to the palace of Persian king Artaxerxes I. Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to oversee the construction, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the building of those massive walls. And uh, 40,000 people were there doing this work, came back from the exile. But it was difficult. It wasn't just the work of restacking those huge stones. There was also a lot of opposition to the rebuilding from the Gentiles around. So they had to work with a sword in one hand, a trowel in the other, trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And they worked hard to reset the walls of the city in only 52 days. Now they say, you know, uh, Zerubbabel's temple, which you could call the third temple after the destruction of Herod's, was kind of a shoddy makeover. Um, And you can't blame them. How would you like someone at your back all the time shooting at you when you're trying to build? You know? So anyway, uh, they did the best they could. They wanted that temple back. Ezra the people led the people in worship. Ezra the priest led them in worship back to Yahweh. Nehemiah 8, 1 to 12 says it was on the first day of the seventh month, Feast of Trumpets, when Ezra the priest opened the Torah scroll and began to read. They had so much respect for Yahweh's word, they stood up and they bowed and they wept when they heard the law. Can you believe it? See anything like that today? Are you kidding me? They wept when they heard Yahweh's law because they knew this is Yahweh speaking to us now. And we've been, we've been out of sorts for a long time. We have not been faithful. A lot of it wasn't just because they didn't know. It's been a long time, 70 years. You know, some of them weren't even born at the time. His reading included Leviticus 23, 23 to 25, and Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial blowing trumpets, and holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, which is always true of a Sabbath, no work, no Commerce, no buying and selling. Remember how Yahshua chased the money changers out? But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. Numbers 29.1 says this is a commanded day to assemble, an entire day of blowing of trumpets. So you see some, somebody running around here blowing a trumpet? Hey, that's what it's all about. And on the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. That means a coming together, of course. You shall do no servile work. It is a day of blowing the trumpet unto you. You know, if you you ever do a study on 
trumpets and what they signify. If you do a study on that, you're going to find pivotal events being announced by the trumpet, almost telling a whole story of salvation in themselves. We read the following, and as I do, you'll see the remarkable plan of salvation of unveiled. I can't read the whole passage because we've got a, other things too, but uh, in Exodus 19.16, we find that the law was given at the sound of the shofar, sound of the trumpet. In Joshua 6.20, Israel conquered Jericho, remember that, with a blast of the trumpet. Marched around seven times, blew the trumpet, and psh, down went the walls. The watchman who stood upon Jerusalem's walls blew the shofar, Exodus 33.3-6. The blowing of the shofar ushers in the day of Yahweh. Find that in Joel, chapter 2. Now notice this, the coming Messiah will be announced with the sound of the shofar, Zechariah 9.14, the sound of a trumpet. Remember at the last trump? The shofar will be blown at the time of the ingathering of the exiles of Israel to Jerusalem. So we got Yahshua coming back. We've got the exiles being drawn forth. Call to assemble at a trumpet call in Judges 3. 27 and 2 Samuel 20, verse 1. So we got Yasha coming back, the people gathering together. Then you have the shofar as a reminder. Uh, well, as a coronation of kings, you know, they, they always had the, you know, you see in the, in the uh, typically in uh, movies and so forth, all these people standing there, and the king, you know, he comes and they're blowing their long horns. And uh, for the coronation of kings, you have a, Trumpet. Yahshua's going to be the coming king, isn't he? He is a king, but he's going to come and establish his kingdom as well. The shofar is a reminder that Yahweh reigns. Psalm 47.5. So we have a whole story planned by the sound of the trumpet. The trumpet was blown to announce the beginning of the annual feast. Numbers 10.10. The shofar was blown at the start of the jubilee. Leviticus 25.9. The trumpet is sounded at the resurrection of the dead. We have the whole story right here of salvation and the blowing of the trumpet. John heard in vision a heavenly voice like a trumpet in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The blowing of the shofar is a call to repent in Isaiah 58.1. Seven trumpets will sound when Yahshua judges the earth during the tribulation. Revelation 8, 6 to 9, and 21. Why do you suppose the trumpet figured so prominently in Yahweh's feast days? Well, feast is the Hebrew chag, meaning a pilgrimage to observe a festival. It's some place you've got to go to observe Yahweh's festival. Numbers 10, 3 defines when the trumpet was to be blown. To assemble, to journey, for war, and for the feast. I think all four elements will likely merge when Yahshua returns. We'll see the same thing. And his people will gather during a feast because we read it will be a time appointed that Yahshua will return. A moed. It's not going to be just any old day. It's going to be he's going to come at one of his feast days. It has to be. That's what an appointed time is. It's a feast. People that don't keep the feast have no clue. Oh, he could come tomorrow, Billy Graham used to say. No, tomorrow's not a feast day. I don't believe he's going to come tomorrow. He's going to come at an appointed time. 
Daniel 8, 19 and 11, 27 and 35 all say the end shall be at the time appointed. A Moed, Hebrews uh, number 4150. The same word is translated solemn feast of Yahweh. They'll be journeying to keep these feasts. Pilgrim feasts are not to be kept at home. People say, oh, I'll just keep the feast in my backyard. That's not what Yahweh commands, if you understand what the meaning is of the feast. As we said, it's a pilgrimage to observe a feast. You must go to a place where Yahweh places his name. But more than that, we believe and practice that it's going to be a wilderness place, a place of safety, of journeying to. When you keep Yahweh's feast, guess what? He's going to protect you. Yahshua will subdue the nations of the earth with a double-edged sword. Revelation 19 says it will be war. Many people don't believe this. They think Yahshua's come back with smiles and pat everybody on the head, and that'll be the end of it. They can't possibly conceive that Yahshua's going to return in fury. And yet it's all over the scripture. They've been duped to believe that a follower of the Savior has a backbone like a rubber band. He's not spiritually made in the image of Yahshua if he's he's that way. The true savior of the Bible has been stolen away and replaced by an imposter. It's the Hollywood JC they see. A flaccid, blonde-haired, effeminate, weak, milk-toast, European, who walks around Galilee with a forlorn look. Or he's like that one movie shows him, the smiling Messiah. He's always grinning. I don't know what he's grinning about. My Bible said he even wept. But that's Hollywood. Contrast the common image with Luke 12, 49. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Suppose you that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you, no, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father. The mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. The mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's not a very pretty picture, is it? But that's what happens when the truth divides. People that won't accept the truth, it has a sense to separate you're not going to hear a whisper of this, about this in today's pulpit, but it's true. That's what Yasha said. Many don't understand the gravity, the urgency of these prophetic feast days. They just don't, they don't, for one thing, know even know what they're about, let alone how significant they are. The only commanded holidays in the scriptures are just as important as any of the Ten Commandments. It's all part of it. When they're given in Leviticus 23, it starts out with the Sabbath. Then he goes into... Uh, the feast days. The feasts are key in many ways, even in some nominal worship. They know that the feasts, like trumpets, are central in prophecy, especially when they read 1 Corinthians 15, which we read, by the way, last night. He said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Why? Because that's when Yahshua returns. Change to spirit beings. Dead people rising, changed to spirit, brought back to life again. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, just going to be like that. And there they go. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This is a book of worship. Worship. Trumpets is part of that. Worship. It's for those who truly seek Yahweh in truth. Now, if you just want to dabble in uh, the Old Testament because you think it's cool, because maybe because the Jews do it, Leviticus is not for you. Leviticus is about putting your faith into action, to actually practice what it says. If you don't practice your faith, then you're not serious about your faith. That's how I look at it. Leviticus 27.34, the summation of the book of Leviticus, these are the commandments which Yahweh commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. No other book contains so much direct communication from Yahweh himself as does Leviticus. Here we find his active presence and his involvement. When he's presently there, it's important. When your boss stops by your desk, there's a reason. You know, it's important what he has to say. No other book but this one. When you read Nehemiah 8, chapter 8, verse 1, you find that all the people assembled. Why? It was a feast day. It's significant that it marks their return to Jerusalem. We know that Yahshua will return again from the sound of the trumpet, by the sound, and will gather his people to go to Jerusalem. Numbers 29.1, and in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. It is a day of blowing the trumpets unto you. It's a commanded day to assemble an entire day. So that's what we do. We assemble, and it's a joyful time, too. It's a joyful time. The feast, this feast is, and uh, because Yahshua is going to come back, you know, think about it. Finally, this world is going to be changed like it should be to righteousness. We find the approach or appearance of Yahweh and Yahshua are always accompanied, it seems, by the sound of a trumpet. It's like a king, a royal uh, magistrate is always announced by a trumpet. And because people have never studied these basic truths on their own, their pastors have never told them about them, most will never come to know Yahweh's will here. You know, the rituals were only added later because the people proved they couldn't be obedient. The sacrifices. Some people say, well, we don't sacrifice, so we don't keep the feast. What? They're separate. They were added. There's something added. They're an addendum. The sacrifices were an addendum. This was the law. You don't say because people got a divorce, we do away with marriage. It's a people's fault. Jeremiah 7.22. We often hear that... uh, That they are abolished. Well, why would Yahweh say in 1 Samuel 15, 22, that obedience is better than sacrifices? There you go. If you couldn't be obedient without sacrifices, Yahweh's people have a heart to obey and do it his way. Anything else is idolatry, which is the way of the flesh, which is the way of man. Man has always fiddled with his worship, always changed things the way he wants it. Well, we try not to change things here. We try to return, restore what was first given. That's what we're trying to do here. If you want to go with us, we're glad to have you. If you want to fight it, well, there's the church down the road. You can go there too.
but we're trying to change back to the way it was, the way Yahweh wanted it. Restoration message. Paul's objective was not to dispense with the old and create a new. He said in Acts 24, 14 that he believed all things written in the law and the prophets. All things. In Romans 15, 18, he said his goal was to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. That was his goal. Go out to the Gentiles. Convert them to the truth. Looking the other way, from the Old Testament forward to today, we find the same message. Deuteronomy 4.29. But if from thence you shall seek Yahweh your Elohim, you shall find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. See, it involves your entire will, your entire life. It's not a part-time thing. When we seek Yahweh, we live it the best we can. We live it. He says, when you're in tribulation, all these things are come upon you. Even in the latter days, if you turn to Yahweh your Elohim and shall be obedient to his voice, for Yahweh your Elohim is a merciful El, he will not forsake you. You follow him, he's with you. Even when things get really bad, he'll be with you. He promises that. If you can't trust in Yahweh's promise, what promise can you trust in? Neither he will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swear unto them. So, there you have it. Comforting words. If you seek him, he's going to be with you. He's going to protect you and guide you. You'll find him. So that's what these feasts are all about, brethren. It's about seeking him. Seeking him, about seeking his face, which is what Israel did when they went before him. They call it seeking his face to look at him face to face, in essence. So may our whole hearts and souls be involved as we begin the final observances of the year. I always look forward to this time of year, and especially tabernacles, because you got eight days, seven plus one, eight days of fellowship with brethren, learning his word, eating great. We eat great here. You should see all the food we've been hauling in. You better come. We don't want to waste it. Well, we have another exciting thing. I guess you know what that is. It's not, I want to drink. It's uh, something much better than that. One of the blessings of the feast is when some come with a desire for immersion. And hallelujah, we have two today who have traveled a long way to be here, who desire to change their lives through repentance and baptism. A man I was counseling, with, counseling for one time for immersion not, uh, not long ago, decided that he had to first study some doctrinal things out. And I said, well, that's fine. You've got to be settled in your mind. So you can't come back and say it was a mistake like the Bible talks about, going the wrong direction. So I agreed. And he blindsided me with the comment, well, baptism really isn't necessary anyway. I told him I begged to differ. And that he did not grasp the seriousness of immersion. And because of that, I'm afraid you're not ready. So I didn't baptize him. In a simple but powerful statement, the Apostle Peter declared, baptism now saves us. How about that? It's not important. It saves us. 1 Peter 3.21. Save here means to deliver from the penalties of messianic judgment and to save from the evils that keep us from Yahshua's deliverance from sin. 
Penalty for our past sins need to be eliminated. If not, we have basically hung ourselves, metaphorically speaking. If we can't get rid of those past penalties and move on to uh, live for Yahweh, we've got problems. In the baptism, we're dealing with the deadly results of sin. We call it putting to death the old man in the waters of baptism. The metaphor about being buried is just as clear as a bell when it comes to baptism and the waters of baptism. That's why we don't sprinkle or pour, because that's not burying. Burying is putting someone under all the way. It's a message that's getting more and more difficult to get through to people today, that baptism is key, not only because of what it does for your, uh, your, your past and wiping away the penalty of what you've done in the past, but also because following baptism is what? The laying down of hands for the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you will not be resurrected. The Bible is clear on that. He resurrects his people through the power of his Spirit. It's like a magnet just kind of drawing you. The masses, the masses are poisoned with the inclusiveness and diversity syndrome of the culture. And that bleeds into thinking as far as the faith goes of a lot of people. That because moral standards separate, we'll just remove the standard. You know, we'll do away with the law. It's bad, really. Like the fellow who read so much about the bad effects of smoking that he gave up reading... You know, the sins of King David impacted his life drastically, but it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It was progression. We look from our vantage point and we wonder, how could he have strayed so far at that point? King David, the man, you know, for him having multiple wives and concubines was already the order of the day. They were doing it all over the place. But Yahweh says for a king... Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Look at Solomon. What happened to him? There's a reason Yahweh has these laws. We as Yahweh's people are what you might call iconoclasts. We're image breakers. We don't fit the mold that the world is trying to create. We live for different reasons. We have a whole different goal in life. We don't live for the world. We live for the goal of salvation, for a life in a different world, serving Yahweh for eternity. We don't, as we're counseling for baptism, we mentioned that we don't know what goes beyond, you know, when Yahshua or Yahweh returns, sets up in the new Jerusalem, sets up his kingdom. That's as far as the story goes for us. We don't know what happens after that. But it says of his kingdom there shall be no end, which means look out into eternity. It's the only eternity we know, looking out into the sky. I should say the only eternity we can see. There's lots of plans going on out there, and maybe you can be part of it if we remain faithful. 